cloud. So I'm just clicking record. Um, this doesn't mean like the exact start to the episode. We um, we will take a second here. And um, did you have any questions before we started? Nope. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Okay, so also last thing, um, before, when, after the episode, I'm gonna get you to send me your bio, which I'm sure you have somewhere. Mm -hmm. Cool, I'll get, that to, get you to send that to me afterwards. Um, can you hear me okay? Yep. Awesome, okay, cool. All right, we're gonna start in five, that's okay, four, three, two, Hello and welcome to season two of Nuance of Impact. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Josh Morrison from One Day Sooner. And I have to start because a lot of folks here aren't gonna know what One Day Sooner is. So Josh, let's start off by clearing the air. What is One Day Sooner? So One Day Sooner uh, is a nonprofit um, that advocates on behalf of people who wanna participate in human challenge trials for COVID-19. And human challenge trials are a special um, kind of riskier type of, of study where you're deliberately exposing people to infection as a way of studying a disease or studying uh, vaccines or treatments for it. Do people, is this, a real, is this a normal thing? Like do people voluntarily contract scary diseases like COVID-19 for the greater good on a usual, on a regular day-to-day -day basis that I just maybe didn't know about? Um, yeah, it's not that well known, right? But, but actually it's used for a number of different diseases um, like uh, influenza, but also uh, malaria, dengue fever, um, typhoid, cholera, a lot of different things. And it's been helpful in actually developing um, uh, some vaccines for, for flu and for typhoid and cholera and also for, for malaria. Um, actually, even during COVID, uh, there was a malaria vaccine that, that might be as much as 80% effective that was tested out um, with, uh, with challenge studies, which would be an amazing achievement if that vaccine ends up working uh, that well. Why would anyone? <laughs> <laughs> intentionally, even for the greater good. And this is like, you're talking to somebody who's been involved with charity work. Like I'm very aware mm -hmm. of, you know, that transaction of giving back for the greater good and, and you know, that good feeling that you get um, from doing it. It's a whole different ball game when you're talking about illness and the mm -hmm. potential for, for mm -hmm. illness. So why, like, why do it? Why do people do it? So I think it's, you know, broadly the same sorts of reasons for why someone might want to, to um, uh, be in the military and, and, and do military service um, or, you know, do other things like, like I'm a, a kidney donor. Um, and so, so that's another example of something where you're taking on a, a risk in order to, to help someone else. And I think in the context of COVID in particular, um, you know, I know that, that uh, when I started One Day Sooner and I became interested in, in participating in a, in a challenge study, you know, this was back in uh, late March and it, and it felt like, you know, there's this horrible pandemic that's happening that's, you know, drastically altered my life and, and everyone else's life and was making me very afraid, particularly for my parents' health. And, you know, I felt like this is the way that I could give back um, and, and not just give back, but also feel empowered to be doing something constructive. And, and I'm someone, and I think a lot of people one day sooner 
are people who, you know, when you see a problem, rather than feel disempowered and demoralized and victimized by, by a problem, would rather be doing something to solve it. Uh, and so I think that was the motivation for um, to participate in challenge studies for, for a lot of people with one day sooner. You just said you're a kidney donor. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Oh. Did you give it to somebody you knew or? Uh, I actually didn't. Um, I'm somewhat unusual that way, although not um, not completely. In the United States, uh, about 350 or so people now are um, Good Samaritan kidney donors who, who give a kidney to a stranger each year. And actually, that happens every now and then. There's not much I can do about it. Just give me one moment. Sorry. Oh, don't, don't worry about it. So sorry, Josh. It's the dreaded mailman oh, no. oh. and the dog. Oh. Um, so, um, so what was I saying? I was saying, I, say, I, I was so saying. Um, let's, we'll start with, um, so you shared, just shared that you're a kidney donor. Did you um, give it to somebody you knew or? Yeah, so I actually gave, uh, donated, donated to a stranger. Um, which is unusual, but not um, not that unusual. About 350 or so people each year now in the U.S. Um, donate to someone they didn't know. Actually, 10% of all living donors in uh, the United Kingdom uh, are Good Samaritan donors, and uh, it's also really common in, in Israel. And so, for me, you know, I had read about kidney donation. Um, God, I guess now it's 13 years ago. Um, and the idea of being able to save someone's life um, and where the benefits to them were much higher than the risk to me, you know, that, that felt kind of like a, like a superpower in a way. And it felt like this kind of amazing thing to be able to do. And I was working as a corporate lawyer at the time when I actually donated, uh, which was nine years ago. My, the anniversary, the kidneyversary was actually just, um, what, this past uh, Sunday. And oh, um, happy yeah, anniversary. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was number nine. Um, and it's sort of like I, I kind of treat it like a second birthday each year. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I didn't know John when, when I donated, but we became friends um, after uh, when, when we met. Um, so that was really nice. Jeez. What was that experience like? Like, obviously, you were a corporate lawyer at the time. And I know from talking to you before this interview um, that you you went on to do legal work to become a lawyer on behalf of kidney donors. So obviously that, that impacted you in some great way. It, it sort of changed your career. Um, what was it like? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of still sort of chasing the high of, of donating and saving someone's life because it was, I mean, it was, it was a good time in my life for lots of reasons, but, but, um, but that was, it was one of the most kind of joyous experiences um, of my life to be, to be able to, to have this impact and, and save someone else's life. Um, that, that just felt absolutely incredible. And I, and being a corporate lawyer, uh, did not feel incredible. And so it was like, okay, well, you know, what should I, what should I do with my life? And it took, you know, another year or two until I decided, okay, well, this, this kidney thing, you know, makes me pretty happy and, and sounds pretty good. So, th so that's what kind of got me into the field professionally, because I felt like as a kidney donor, I could be an effective advocate 
um, to give kidney donors more, you know, kind of power and, and influence in the transplant field and therefore have donors be treated better and, and have more people donate. And so that's been my work um, from about 2013 until uh, the pandemic. And, and what, um, what does that look like? Like what is advocating for? I mean, it seems pretty, here's how it goes in my head. Okay. You decide to give your kidney away. You, I have a friend who donated um, part of her liver to her mother. Mm -hmm. So in my, so from limited knowledge I have, you mm -hmm. go through all these assessments to make sure that you're of sound mind and body. You um, have interviews with your family, the the doctors and whoever, the the people in charge mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. sure that you know it, it's you're doing it for the right reasons. And then you go under, they cut it out, they send you away, and you live the rest of your life. Like what, what am I, what am I missing? And where does a lawyer come into play? And who knows, oh. I'm also from Canada. So, um, you know, our, our healthcare system is obviously very different. Maybe it's different over here. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's definitely um, the basic, the basic structure of being a kidney donor. Um, but, you know, I think, I think most of us feel like there are people in our lives um, who we would donate to if we, if they needed to a, a transplant, we were able to donate. Um, but only, uh, and I, again, I don't know the numbers in Canada, but, but only one of seven people in the U.S. who needs a kidney gets one uh, from, a living, from a living donor. And um, so, so there's definitely a, kind of a gap between people who need it and people who donate. And if you ask people, you know, we did a poll in, in New York, and I think something like 16% of people said, oh, I would definitely give a kidney to a stranger. And I think more than half said I would definitely give to a family member. Um, so then there's this question of, okay, well, why, why don't we have... Um, enough donors for people who need them. And, and so I think what the mission of, of Weightless Zero, which is my organization that does this, um, this is sort of advocacy has been, is to make kidney transplants easy to ask for and easy to give because, you know, we want to be supporting the choice to donate by, by, you know, just even on the most basic level. And this is something that in the U.S. we're not doing enough of. In, the, in Canada, there's, there's more, which is just reimbursing the expenses of being a donor, your lost wages, your travel expenses, child care, things like that. Um, but I think donors should also get supported um, like public servants in other ways. So there should be a sort of GI bill for, for donors. So I think that donors should have kind of the best health care that, that money can buy um, for life. And more people would donate if they had that guarantee. Um, and I think, you know, things like that or like a stipend each year for people doing their follow-up, uh, their, their follow -up, to provide their data for, for follow-up um, would, would also be valuable. And so I think, you know, basically what, that, what the advocacy side of it looks like in practice is trying to uh, achieve these policy changes which would increase donation. Um, and, and so for example, we, um, well, we advocated in New York, uh, in New York State, to have donors have their lost wages and other expenses reimbursed. Um, and uh, it turns out we, we made some progress, but but Governor Cuomo was not a fan. And it turns out that that strangely, uh, uh, President Trump was better for kidney donors than Governor Cuomo. And we were able to advocate, and um, with the help of Congressman Matt Cartwright, who's a Democrat in Pennsylvania. Um, we were able to persuade the Trump administration to um, get uh, to, to change um, regulations to uh, reimburse living donor lost wages. Um, so that that's you know an example, but we we want to go further than that um, and make sure that donors have the um, the best uh, healthcare money can buy. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like I mean here where healthcare is is free, 
to us. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, from, yeah, it, it makes sense. Like, of course I wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't do it if you knew that it was going to cost you your life savings at the other end of it. Right. So it makes complete sense. So how does that bridge into one day sooner? What happened at the beginning of the pandemic? What drove you, um, to starting this initiative with, um, and you have a couple co-founders as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, when the pandemic happened, um, you know, living donation rates went down by about 90% uh, back in March in the U.S. and, and luckily they're back up um, to the to the trend line now. But you know, most of my work is is kind of lobbying and advocacy, and it felt like um, you know people people in Congress really were not focused on kidney issues. Uh, you know, over the the spring, um, and I, I was you know sitting at home in in my apartment in in Brooklyn, feeling um, you know pretty depressed and and scared, and you know it felt like in in my line of work, you know, I, I think that there's a sense in which um, this this terrible tragedy of the pandemic is also um, a sort of opportunity to to do good. And that I felt like, you know, if there's something I could do that'd be useful, um, that would be a better way to spend um, this really, you know, difficult time rather than just kind of like sitting and, and not doing very much. And so a friend of mine sent me this article um, uh, about challenge studies uh, for COVID nineteen. And arguing that they could be could be useful, and the potential benefits of um, of ending the the pandemic, even a very small chance of of moving things one you know like like one day fast one day sooner than the organization, is hugely consequential, right? You know, if if each day in the United States alone uh, a couple thousand people are are dying, let alone the the rest of the world, um, you know, one you know the idea that challenge studies might have a, a 10% chance or a 1% chance even of saving one day, um, that represents dozens or hundreds uh, of lives. Um, and that, that's, that could be enormous. And, and they could do quite a bit more good than that, especially when we think about how difficult it's going to be to get enough vaccines for everyone in the world in, in 2021. So that's kind of the initial logic of, of why I was interested. And then it also fits with the work I'd been doing at Wait With Zero and also with a group I volunteer with called the Rikers Debate Project um, that I co-founded, uh, which is, so it fit with that, the, this, this philosophy, which is kind of trying to use identity politics to improve political decision-making. And, and this is- there. What, What's identity politics? Oh, sorry. So I, I think um, what I mean, or another word might be community politics, but basically, um, the way people um, uh, are politically, um, I mean, what's a, what's a good, how do, how do I describe identity politics as I have within a pithy sentence? Um, it's an aspect of people's identity that they feel strongly about um, that, that connects to, to political behavior or, or, or policies they, they want, right? So, you know, so, so commonly people think of identity politics as something that's either based on like an immutable characteristic um, or, uh, you know, so, so something like, um, uh, like what race you are or something that what might not be quite immutable, but wait, wait, what? like a religion factor. Like I, I always think of, um, and I don't know if you use the same term, but we always, like there's this term social conservatism here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, you know, like you, I, I remember having conversations with friends where it was, 
um, we had this, we had a bunch of friends over to watch a debate at our house. And um, one of the, the women that was at our home pre COVID obviously had said, um, had said, you know, I really love our Green Party, which is like our very left wing party for federal politics. I think I would have voted for them. However, I I have Christian values. This person identified as Christian. So I have Christian values, so I'll vote conservative. And the other people in the room were like, what do you mean? Like, well, I don't understand. But that was for them, it was based on this like identity factor. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's a, religion's a great, a great example because it's an example of something that, feels really close you know it's 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 part of your identity it's part of who you are and and it motivates you in a lot of facets of your life and so when you so so it, it also motivates you politically mm-hmm. and I feel like you know in a lot of ways um there's ten like we tend to th- when people talk about identity politics um I think that it often gets viewed as in opposition to uh, liberalism because being liberal um, means believing in sort of, you know, a complete equality across across everyone um, and, and, you know, freedom and, and tolerance and, and not having, um, you know, it shouldn't matter who, who you are. We're all kind of equal, equal citizens. And I think as a result of that, um, that has kind of weakened um, the left in some ways politically because it, it, it has had it, or at least the, the liberal left, um, because it hasn't had access to these parts of people's identity and, and their, their character that are really important. And so there's a, there's a level of, um, uh, there's a level of connection that, that can be missing um, and so I think that thinking of ways that, you know, we can, we can think of people's identity um, uh, as kidney donors or as challenge volunteers or as incarcerated people. And I think that, um, you know, one thing is they, that, that can mobilize them to be politically active. But I think also it can improve policy because it can, um, the same way that kind of, you know, the founding fathers of the U.S. used federalism as a way of um, bringing political decisions closer to the people who were making them, who were impacted by them. I see identity politics as a similar thing of your, you know, the the people um, who are impacted by a policy deserve to be in the room where that policy is made. And so that's something that's true for for kidney donors and challenge volunteers and incarcerated people and everything like that. And this is sort of the logic behind the legal advocacy for kidney donors, but also for challenge volunteers. So something I wasn't clear on after we talked, and I'm sure I'll get clear about it um, talking today, COVID-19 vaccine was rolled out this week. Um, I think Canada got 235,000 units. We got about 35,000 in uh, the province that I'm in, in Alberta. Big question for me was, were challenge trials a part of the process in the end? Like, no, no. So, so challenge trials haven't been used yet. Um, England is planning to, um, to is planning to use them starting early in 2021. And so, there's obviously a question of like, well, we have a vaccine. Like, why would you need why would you need challenge trials, right? Yeah, and I think clinical, that the, I kind of assumed that clinical trials were just like, it's COVID. We don't need them. Like, get it out. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, and so we, we have something close to victory, but not quite in really wealthy countries, um, or a lot of wealthy countries, 
Uh, and I say not quite because it's still going to take quite a while to, to get everyone vaccinated. Um, but for the rest of the world, um, they don't have access to, to those vaccines, right? And if you think about um, the vaccines that have got, you know, that um, have had evidence so far, um, you know, just at least the ones in the West, so Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca, you know, those are maybe if, if we're lucky, if everything goes really well, that might vaccinate, you know, maybe like 25, 30% of all the people in the world, we still need to, to vaccinate everyone. And they're also, you know, that those vaccines, um, right now, we think they require two doses. Right. Um, but it, it would be better to develop vaccines that require one dose, because it's difficult to, to distribute, um, particularly in lower income countries. And so there's still going to be you know, I definitely think that um, challenge studies, um, you know, if if the, um, I think that either, if there had been more urgency around their deployment and we'd been using them in, been testing vaccines with them in, in September or so, um, that could have sped things up. Or, you know, I think we, we really dodged a bullet and we were really lucky where we thought that the, vac the first vaccines, you know, if we were lucky, maybe would be, 50 to 70% effective. And some of them might work and maybe some of them wouldn't yeah. or something like that. Um, and we've been extraordinarily lucky to have these incredible results um, to have you know 90 plus uh, um, efficacy out of two and, and possibly more than that uh, for vaccines for um, from the Sputnik V and, and the Sinopharm vaccines also having positive results. So I definitely think that you know challenge studies um, would have been much more useful had they been deployed sooner or in a world where um, we weren't, our, our, we didn't have, weren't as lucky with the, the vaccines we developed. Right. Um, but we're going to need to develop multiple vaccines even in 2021. And challenge studies still going to have a, a role to play uh, with, with that. So why, like, why, what's the argument for why we need the challenge studies? Like what's it, yep. especially now that it's out, like what's the argument for it? Yeah, and so so again, it's it's that the the it being out is true um, in the you know in the U.S. and Canada, but not in like India or Brazil or Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you know there's there's a couple different things that challenge studies get you. I guess I'll, I'll start to just kind of three main things. So I think the biggest thing is they can help teach us why vaccines work and when they work or, or won't work, right? And so this is what's called mm -hmm. correlates of protection. And what it means is, um, let's say that we, we give you a vaccine and it, you, you produce antibodies above a certain level, right? right? It would be great to know, okay, that level, that means you're protected. So as long as our vaccine produces those antibodies, then we know that the vaccine's gonna work. Because that means that for these future vaccines, we can just look at those correlates of protection. We can just look at that level, which would be great for you know, a single dose vaccine, a vaccine that might you know, give five years of immunity rather than a year of immunity, vaccine with fewer side effects, things, things like that. Um, so that's some, and, and the reason why challenge studies can really help with that is because since you're only, since you know that most of the people would be infected, if, if they weren't protected, you can observe them very up close, you know, very intensively to get this kind of data in a way that's harder to do with um, a traditional trial, because that is 30,000 people and 1% of them um, might be, um, uh, might be uh, able to be, or might, might be infected in a given month or something like that. 
Um, so that's one one use of them. And I think there's there's two other main ones. The the second one is that um, it is in similar lines. It can tell us a lot scientifically about the virus, and that might you know again at this point that's less valuable than it had been. But let's say for example that we can find out. Um, to some extent, you know, why super spreading events happen, right? Like, are there people, let's say it's the case that some people just shed a lot more virus than other yeah. people, right? That would be really important to know. And that might help us um, have kind of public health guidance that might improve things. And that's one random example, but there's a whole, you know, really just, you know, how does disease work in general? There's a host of different things that, that could be useful that you could learn by observing it up close in controlled circumstances. Um, and the final thing is that, so like you said, it's, it's going to be hard to have future uh, large clinical trials for, uh, for other COVID vaccines, right. but we're going to need a lot of COVID vaccines in order to vaccinate everyone. Um, and we're going to, especially we're, we're going to want ones that are, that are um, uh, like one dose or, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so it might be the case that the challenge studies might end up being the only way that you can figure out is a vaccine effective or not. Um, because it might not be possible to do um, to to do nor more normal studies. So when in saying that, like, is in knowing that you know the the vaccine may not work, and you know people are getting infected with COVID, do people sign up knowing that there's a like there's a likelihood, if not like almost a guarantee, that some people in the study are are gonna not just get sick, but that people could die. <laughs> So, so yeah, so, so it's definitely, there, there's definitely a chance that, you know, it's, it's a riskier study than usual. Um, it's definitely, there's definitely a chance that someone, someone dies. And that's something that we take very seriously and that anyone being in the study would have to, to take seriously. And we'd want to make sure. And I, I think, you know, our volunteers, um, you know, from the survey that we've done, 40% uh, of them have uh, graduate degrees. You know, it's a, it's a well-educated group that we can feel some confidence, you know, understands the risk. I think if you look at the risk of death, because these studies are only for young, healthy people. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the risk of death in that, in that population, um, we, we have really good uh, confidence that it's less than one in 10,000. Now, a one in 10,000 chance of death, that's not something you'd like want to take, you know, just, just normally. Um, by comparison, it's about the same risk of death as, um, as pregnancy or as childbirth would be in the, in the, uh, in the UK a bit lower than it would be in the US. It's about um, about three times lower than the risk of um, being a kidney donor. It's about, I think, is either what, 200 times lower than the risk of, of being a, um, an astronaut um, or about, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's 2000 times lower than that and 100 times lower than the risk of climbing Mount Everest. Um, so it's, it's not- pretty low. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, it's, you know, yes, um, tragically, someone could die, but that is unlikely. And I think, you know, the chance of someone having a, a disease that's serious enough to be, you know, require hospitalization is also fairly unlikely. It's also probably something like one in a thousand mm -hmm. um, in that population. And so you started this project in March? Yes. Yep. What would you say some of the big lessons you've learned through the process? And obviously, so, you know, that process isn't done, right? Like... Yeah, um, I think I think that one of the lessons was um, learning a bit about how um, uh, how how um, opinion and um, like the news environment kind of gets shaped because it was really interesting to see. You know, we, we're a global organization. 
Um, we have employees in, in England, in the Seychelles, in the US, in India. Um, and in different countries, people have different thoughts about challenge studies. And it really depends a lot on you know, who the people in, in power, what, what they're saying about the studies, right? So in, in the UK, um, the UK Vaccine Task Force likes the idea of challenge studies. Um, we've been advocating there. Uh, if you look at the news coverage there, it's almost universally positive. In the US, um, Dr. Fauci does not think that the challenge studies are necessary for, for COVID-19. Um, he's supportive for the NIH sports loss of challenge studies in other areas like with, uh, with flu. Um, and, you know, as a result, the, the conversation in, in the U.S. is like much more um, uh, like it, it's, it's much more like even, right? There's, there's sort of like arguments on both sides and there's, there's some skepticism and there's some support. Uh, so that was really interesting. You know, another thing I think that's been interesting is seeing that, you know, there's, there's kind of this um, sort of tragedy of the commons that comes up with, with transparency and public input. Where everyone in the medical field, I think, in general, agrees that you know we should be transparent, that we should educate the public about these studies and about studies in general. Um, but at the same time, it's also you know being transparent and making your your um, your protocols public, for example, you know having the public in meetings, things like that. Um, that that just kind of opens you up to to criticism, and it also you know, it's, it's just like more friction, it's more hassle to, to do. And so I think that, you know, um, a lot of groups talk, you know, so, so we just had this, this kind of um, uh, kerfluffle with the World Health Organization where they were meeting about, um, about challenge studies uh, to, to talk about um, uh, their uses and, and things like that. And we thought that that one day sooner, and, and research participants in general, or even civil society in general, should be should be represented there. Um, and even though you know the ethics report the World Health Organization put out about these studies says yes, you know we need to have public input. Um, in practice, that that didn't happen, and I, I think it's because there's you know when it it's it's a good thing to to do, but in practice it makes things difficult. I mean that's something that. Yeah. that shows there's a value for a group like us in in representing the public and, and bringing the, the public in, into some of these conversations. Yeah, and I wonder too, I, I always wonder like what the fear is on those because we, we always like, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, challenge trials or any sort of community development project or community investment or not-for-profit social service. Like it's, it's a general theme and there's a common understanding around making sure that people with lived experience or who are going to have lived experience or get a seat at the table. And I wonder sometimes if it's because um, public opinion right now is so polarizing and, um, and we're, there's, a, there's a fear of backlash or there's a fear of um, rejection of a, of a concept or idea. And as a result, you know, the people that are, have the expertise or how, aren't the ones influencing the decision. Um, what was your argument like with the World Health Organization to say like, no, we deserve, I want a seat at the table. Like why, where, or our, you know, our volunteers deserve a seat at the table. What was the argument and, and what, like if you had to break down their reasoning on like why they mm -hmm. said no? What yeah, so um, we wanted to, so, so we basically feel that research participants should be um, involved in uh, decisions about clinical research. Right, that's like the basic philosophy of organization. 
Um, and I think, you know, there, there were, two, I think um, the WHO's view was, look, you know, I think a couple of things. First, you know, the, the meeting that was happening is um, this kind of technical scientific meeting. We don't normally have um, civil society groups there at, at that meeting. I mean, they do have, I mean, they have like the NIH is, has an observer there, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust. Oh. Um, there are funders there, but. Um, because they're kind of funders, like it's like you get, you pay for your seat at the table kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's, I, I don't think it should be that way, but I, I think, um, so, so I think there's, there's, um, yeah. So I think one, one, the w, one part of the WHO's view is, is that, you know, look, uh, we, you know, it's important. These, these decisions need to be made relatively quickly. It's important to, to, to move quickly. Uh, we shouldn't just have one civil society group, you know, in the form of one day sooner there, like we should have, you know, multiple ones if we're going to do that. And we're like not equipped to, to do that here. Um, and from our perspective, it's like, you know, I think, I think there should be a default of, um, you know, meetings kind of being public. I think it helps educate the public about, you know, the, about how these studies work and the advantages and disadvantages and things like that. Um, but I also think it's, it's that, you know, there is this point apart from being open to the public there, that research participants in particular should have, should have a say. Um, so that was, I think that was part of it. And I think also the other piece of it is just that, you know, I think what the World Health Organization has done with challenge studies is, is really quite admirable. I think that it's, it's difficult for a, a large organization like them to be advancing these potentially controversial um, research. Mm -hmm. And they've done a good job of that. And I think, I think um, you know, part of it is if you're the, if you're the, the woman running things over there and there's like a million different considerations and a million different, different things you have to, balls you have to keep in the air to be making this work, to add a whole other like set of balls in the air is like, that, that's like, are you kidding? Like we're, you know, you know like we're, we're already doing all the steps. So um, I think that that's part of it too. But, and the last thing I'll say, and I think, you know, it goes to your point about, um, you know, kind of community involvement in general with like, you know, local development and things like that. Um, I think that a lot of times it's really easy to let um, civil society involvement or, you know, um, including the public end up being like the addition of, um, of like another veto point, essentially. And, and it, that it can, that it, it ends up being not a source of momentum, but a source of, of friction, right? Something that keeps people, um, keep, keeps decisions from being made. And that I think is, you know, like that's a dynamic that is bad. Um, it's particularly bad, I know, you know, in the, in the context of like, like urban development of like, you know, if you're trying to build um, whatever it is, a, a homeless shelter or, you know, affordable housing, and it's just, it's just so much easier to slow something down than, than to speed it up. Um, so I think, I think, you know, thinking about how to improve that is a, is an interesting question as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's that interesting, that concept of, of partnership and collaboration, right. That we talk about so often where it's, it's, um, it's working towards the common goal. And I always love it because I think like you can develop as many agreements and documentation as you want, but if you don't actually truly have buy-in for the end goal and, and how you're going to get there and um, you truly don't value the other constituents around the table, then yeah, nothing gets done. Like things pause, things freeze because self-interest comes first and self-interest of an organization or a person or whatever. So yeah, I think that's, that makes sense. And yeah, totally commendable to have moved so quickly with, with vaccines uh, for the World Health Organization. And, and yeah, it's, it, things are, things are moving, things are happening. Um, what's been a big win for you 
as you've sort of seen this journey come together, what would you just say, like, these are some things that I'm really proud of and yeah, where, where do you stand on that? Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, the easiest, the easiest, like, big win um, is when the, the UK government announced that they were going to run challenge studies, right? That was, that was something we knew that they were working on, and we were, we were working with them on um, for a long time, since, like, June. Um, but, but, like, you know, you don't know it's going to pan out, and, and so I remember that happening. And that actually, that was in October, I think, and that was actually during... Um, our, our organization had kind of like a mini, at least it's the, the, the three of us that live in, in uh, New England and were able to, to see each other in person had like a, a little mini retreat. And it turned out that the, that, that news broke like during the retreat and actually like HBO was filming during it. So it was like a really funny um, sort of thing. And that also, you know, that news came out, um, you know, we were, we were urging them to be public because we thought it was important to be public. And we were putting, we put together a petition campaign um, that was essentially meant to, to get that to be public. Um, and the, the, the guy um, at the Financial Times, Clive Cookson, uh, who was going to cover the petition campaign, you know, he was like, okay, I'll cover the petition campaign. And that, him, him reporting that is what led to that like announcement, right? So that was really like, like that was really cool, right? That was like, you know, you, you can't, um, can't, can't get better than that. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other, another example, was this um, this open letter we did over the summer in support of challenge studies. We got a bunch of different experts and Nobel laureates and people um, saying this is a good idea. And I thought that was really helpful um, from a validating um, studies, you know, point of view. Um, the last, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll say two, two other things. Um, and these are things that are sort of uh, largely in the future, but that I'm really excited about. Um, so one is we're about to launch um, an African chapter of One Day Sooner um, to be led by Zachariah Kafuko, who's a Zambian national currently living in, in the Seychelles. Um, and he's been working with us for, for a while as our, our vaccine equity lead. And you know, the same way that we want uh, research participants to be included in discussions of research, we also think it's important to be including the, the voices of people from low-income countries in Western policy discussions about the vaccines. Like if people listening to this can take one message away, because I think that that for most of us in, in rich countries, we kind of feel like, okay, we won, we've got the vaccine now. And that's that's there, you know, even even for us, you know, the rollout of that vaccine is gonna take a while and all, all that sort of thing. But but that's very different, it's a very different situation in um uh, in the rest of the world, and if you're if you're living in Africa, and you know, so so for example, Goldman Sachs projected that um, I think there's a I think they, they thought there's going to be 50 percent of Americans are going to be vaccinated in April, and then in, like of Indians, for example, 50 percent are going to be vaccinated by December. So if you imagine like, and, and India is actually in a relatively good position as far as low-income countries go because they do have a very significant um, vaccine production industry in the form um, largely the Serum Institute. So it, yeah, if people can take one thing uh, away from this, it's that there's a huge problem of getting enough vaccines for the whole world. And that's not, I mean, we, we hope that challenge studies can, can contribute to that, but that's not fundamentally like a like challenge study problem. That's like a like vaccine problem. And it's like a human yeah. being equal problem. Higher privileged uh, countries are the ones that are receiving the vaccines first because they have the buying power to, to purchase the vaccine, which means that if you live if you're a resident of a country that um, does not have the same buying power, then you know you're going to get it later. Your risk of dying is more. Your risk of contracting the virus is more because it's going to be in your country longer. 
Right. And it's and it's also like the cost, like we had a, um, a, a event uh, that we had some of the experts from the African CDC um, and some other uh, universities in Africa um, uh, on, a, on a panel. Um, and, you know, the actual amount of how much it's going to cost to vaccinate Africa is like $10 billion was, was their estimate, roughly like 9.8 or something. And um, for those of us like me who doesn't, that just sounds like a lot of money, like what it would be the cost for the U.S. or for... Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know what the cost for you. I mean, so I'd have to do some back of the envelope math. I mean, there's, so I know like Moderna's vaccine, I think is, I think it's $20 a dose. Um, And so I think that would mean it's $40 a person. And so that would be like 1.2 billion. um, No, I'm sorry. That'd be 12 billion for the vet, for the, the paid Moderna. And if they, they're not, they're vaccinating everyone. Um, And then it would be, you know, another, however much it would cost to actually like pay the nurses and stuff to give you yeah. the um, But the point is that it's not a huge amount of money in um, like in the scheme of things, right? Like it's not something um, that, that you know, uh, the West, Western countries aren't capable of, of supporting. And it's also something that if we don't um, take, take action, we're gonna be losing this kind of global race for prestige with, with China. Um, and that is that I think that is meaningful. And that's something we should care about is we should want to, to show the benefits of liberalism um, to the whole world by being by being generous. Um, so Tell me all, more about that. What, what do you mean by that? Like what would the race with with um, China? Oh, oh, I think, you know, so so um, so China has has several different vaccine candidates. Uh, their Sinopharm candidate um, just reported some results from a study in the United Arab Emirates um, that, that says that it's 86 percent effective. Um, they've, they, they are, they're engaging in a campaign of public diplomacy of saying, oh, like, we'll give you the, our, our vaccine. Um, I know like Indonesia, for example, um, is collaborating with them, with them on this. And so I think, um, Taking that sort of like leadership role in a world economy to say like, okay, I'm watching the crown right now. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is very crown-esque. <laughs> Right? Like it's like taking the leadership amongst all countries to be the first one to provide support for other countries. So is that what you're talking about? Like the race to maintain? Are we yeah. talking about the crown? Right, right. Well, so because I think, you know, I think that is as imperfect as the United States or as England, um, you know, has, was and has been as a global leader. The alternative of having a country, you know, a country that is repress that's that's not liberal, that's repressing people in Hong Kong and has concentration camps and committing genocide in um, uh, Xinjiang is that pronounce it um, among for for Uyghurs um, overall that, some bad shit. There's bad shit going on. Yeah, that's that's not something you know. I think that that as Americans, you know, I think and I think that there's I, I don't want to overstate what what great power competition should be. I certainly don't think we should be you know, that there should be some sort of like new cold war. But, but I think that that this is a place, you know, we where we want to be exercising influence by showing that like, by, by in a positive way, by, by you know, uh, promoting global health and the idea that we could have, um, you know, something positive. I think right now the West is um, like, is doing quite badly compared to, you know, not just China, but, but you know, countries across East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we want to have some sort of positive leadership and compete in a positive way, 
you know, giving, making commitments for, for vaccine equity and, and vaccinating the world, that's something we should be a part of and we shouldn't be leaving it to, um, to others that don't share our, our values. Yeah, I mean, that's especially interesting now because like, because we're in such a polarizing environment on a global scale, it's kind of like making sure it's, it's, it's not just responsibility for doing the right thing. It's responsibility over a very polarizing dynamic when it comes to world issues overall and equity overall. Right. So it's, it, I mean, it infringes on social justice and, um, and social justice concepts around health equity. Uh, and it do doesn't even infringe it, it, That's what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, when you talk about working with England on the challenge studies, like how have you worked with them? How have you supported, um, you know, leading up to that announcement, what was your guys' role? Yeah, so we have a call, um, now we've bumped them into two weeks, but, but for over the summer um, and most of the fall, we've had a call every week, um, which had like most of the different groups working on challenge studies in some way um, were, would, would, have, would have someone on the call, you know, with us kind of talking about their progress and, um, and not just with us, but, but with the other, other groups. So we have, a representative from the NIH there, folks from Oxford. Um, for, for a while, we had um, some folks from um, uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. And uh, we also had someone from Imperial College who was kind of keeping, you know, who was kind of keeping us uh, apprised. And, you know, there would be various kind of scientific or ethical questions uh, about the study that would get discussed in, in those meetings and people kind of give ideas about best practices um for for what that could look like and then it would go to who was right yeah well so it's so the it's it's all it's like um uh the nature of this unfortunately is that it's it's all kind of opaque right so like you know so um so adrian hill is was the guy at oxford who um uh who would be on the calls but you know oxford the oxford vaccine group is like a big and multifarious you know thing and so what, what happens when, when Adrian goes back to, to Oxford. Um, and so, you know, it turns out that um, the, uh, I think it's called the UK Vaccine Task Force, I wanna say, um, was the, the group that was kind of ultimately leading challenge study development. It's, it's all, it's just kind of complicated. So it's um, Imperial College is, was, is kind of the, the, um, the main lab kind of that was intends to run these studies. Uh, and they, they and, a, and a private company called HVivo uh, um, are, are the, um, the ones that have a contract with the British government to, to run um, what's called an infectious dosing study, the first study you need to do. Um, to figure out the right amount of virus to give people so you can reliably um, know people are going to get sick, but not, not too sick. Um, and then Oxford is planning to do a study of people who are already immune to COVID, who've been infected before, possibly been vaccinated before, to identify those um, correlates of protection that I mentioned earlier. So it sounds like it was almost like a community of practice. So it was trying to intersect the system at whatever, you know, whatever way you possibly could, looking at what was going to create the most influence and then signing up the volunteers to demonstrate not just an, an appetite for the concept, but an appetite for its ability and, and its possibility. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, like I said, we represent the research participants, um, but, but we also, I think, end up representing the public in a lot of ways because like we just are the public face for, for these studies, right? Like we're the ones who are like willing to talk to press um, about them. And I think, 
you know, so, so I think mm. that was a really valuable thing um, for, for these studies because it was a chance to have, um, you know, outsiders essentially um, who are, you know, we're, we take, we make a lot of effort to be scientifically informed and we have a very right. robust advisory board and we have a research department. We published in academic journals. Right. Um, but, but fundamentally having, you know, I, I think it led to a bit more openness and transparency that might be the case in some other contexts. And it was because, you know, like we were needed, right? It's because since these studies are, are riskier, you know, there's, there's a place for, for advocacy by a group, by the research participants ourselves. But we wanna take that and, and be bringing that to other, other studies. I think that, um, you know, our long-term vision is to be a sort of um, public union for research participants mm -hmm. and not a union in the sense of like trying to, you know, get the most payment um, for participating in research, but trying to, to um, work with industry and work with ac academia to get the best research possible that's as safe as possible and as, as far reaching as, as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, um, you know, right now there's a, there's a dearth of research participants in the field. It's a problem for, for clinical research. And I think also, um, what was I going to say besides the, um, also, I, I think that um, there's a lot of scientific, you know, I think, I think if we chose to, to do a kind of moonshot to end flu, to have a, a universal flu vaccine, or to be, you know, putting real resources into other tro to tropical diseases like malaria or, or yeah. dengue um, and trying to end those, um, or even eradicating the common colds, I think that our success with vaccination with, with COVID indicates that we have that potential, but there's not a kind of public face. Mm. Um, and, and so we want to try to be that, that public face, which is part of why, you know, and, and it's both in our own interest because we're more powerful when things are public, mm -hmm. um, but it's also, we think, in the field's interest. And that's also why in the U.S. Um, we're, we're advocating to create a vaccine day, a federal holiday um, to celebrate COVID-19 vaccination. And that's something we think would be helpful from a vaccine hesitancy and encouraging vaccination perspective. Mm, yes. um, but, but also I think it'd be helpful for, you know, for announcing policies and thinking about what the future of vaccination looks like. Because I think that we can see the technologies there when we focus on it. And so now it's a matter of mobilizing the world to, to focus on it. And I was talking about that, you know, I was talking about kind of competition before, but I think, you know, I think that thinking about kind of universal viral defense, thinking about, you know, directing some of our kind of like warlike energy instead of against humans, against, uh, against disease. And, and that, that could be, you know, through an organization like the World Health Organization or uh, CEPI, the Center for, um, what's that the center? Uh, this this um, something epidemic preparedness coalition for epidemic preparedness initiatives. I don't know what it's, 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 it's the key. It's all good. Um, That's why I gotta stop really using acronyms. Really. I swear, no one knows what they mean anyway. <laughs> um, well, it's also for when they're international. It's also that like people speak different languages, right? So it's yeah, like valid. You're right. Why the the acronyms don't aren't as aren't as intuitive or like Gavi or or, Co, or Covax. Those are all things. Yeah. Well, I, I always like at the beginning of this. Remember, it was just like it was Corona and then it was COVID nineteen and then like it's just the things get confusing. And well, it I, should have been SARS too. People, they, it, it, it really. Well, well. So I mean, it, it, if you, it's it's SARS CoV two, right? And and so like I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. You you're SARS the expert. <laughs> Um, well, I, I don't, when I say it, should, I, just, I just mean that like the world would have been better off had it been called SARS-2 from the beginning. 
because that would both be accurate because it shares like 96% of its DNA or something with SARS. Wow. And um, would also have, have indicated the seriousness of it. But the reason people, they didn't want to freak people out by calling it SARS-2. <laughs> And that's why it's not SARS-2. By Googling it, I found it's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which okay. does sound like something that someone who's not an English Sounds better the other way. Yeah, I think that I think the acronym yeah. was easier. <laughs> um, before we close out today, Josh, when you and I talked, we talked about the lessons and just like what people attach onto in these conversations, especially when you're interviewing media. And I wanted to be really cognizant of that in our conversation. So if there's one thing that you want folks to take away from our conversation today, what would it be? Um, I'll, I'll give one and a half things that I like to hear myself talk. But so, so the first thing, and it, yeah, so I'll, I'll say again, this importance of getting vaccines for the whole world. And it's really easy, you know, when, when obviously this has been something that's been affecting everyone. And so we think of it in terms of like our families, I think naturally, it's like, like when are, when are, when am I going to get a vaccine? When's my parents, you know, my parents, my, my cousins, my brothers, my, my friends. Um, and so that, that means, you know, focusing on, oh, well, if the U.S. is going to get it, if Canada is going to get it, we're, we're done. And that's great. Um, but you know, every, every human on earth is the same and we're all equal and we don't just because you were born in the U S or in Canada, doesn't mean that you should get the vaccine first. And so I, I think that we, as a, as a species need to, to do our best and need to do a much better job than we've been doing to, to care about the whole world and getting vaccines to the whole world. And we can't just say, oh, well, um, now we, you know, oh, we've got a vaccine, we, we're done, right? Because I, I think that, that's the main thing. And the, the other little thing I'll say is this point about, I think it's important that research participants um, are, are able to have more of a say in the ethics of research. I think that'll improve research in a lot of ways. Um, and I think we can get more and better research if we, if we do that, which is kind of the, the point of one day sooner in a lot of ways. Mm. Amazing. Josh, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And I'm really excited about this project. I can't wait to see what's next for you. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Wait. Okay.